Revelation 21. I have gotten so much so far out of the approach to Revelation this way. It's done so much for my own personal faith and walk. Um, It's excited me about what's coming. Some of it, some of it hasn't. This part certainly has. Revelation 21, and we're in verses 1 through 3 this morning as we talk about what's ahead in heaven. Let's read verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes, I shall inherit all things. I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You remember how Star Trek opens? Space, the... Ah, but it's not. This is the final frontier. Heaven is the final frontier. It's the eternal state. It's the final phase and culmination of everything. And how about that beer commercial where the two buddies are at the bar and each holding a mug and one turns to the other and says, it doesn't get any better than this. (laughs) Wrong again. It can get a whole lot better than sitting in a pub with a beer. It's heaven. Heaven has been the preoccupation of God's people since there has been God's people. It's the expected end of all Christians. We expect Christians when they die to go to heaven because of what the Bible says. There were once two men who lived in the same neighborhood, the same subdivision in fact, and it was a minister and a salesman. The minister died at the same time the salesman went off to Florida for a business trip. When he came to Florida, he wanted to telegram his wife to tell her that he had arrived safely, so he sent the telegram, but the telegram, instead of going to his wife, went to the wife of the pastor who had died in that same subdivision. And you can imagine her astonishment when she opened up the telegram and it read, Arrived safely. The heat here is terrible. (laughs) It's not what she expected. The hope of heaven is so built into the fabric of the Christian that our thoughts are on it. They should be. It fills our songs, doesn't it? So many songs have been written about heaven, 
that eternal destiny of all believers. And it seems that the lighter the touch a person has with the things of the earth, the greater the anticipation of heaven. The more immersed we are and gripped by the things of this world, we don't think about heaven all that much. In parts of the world where Christians have it a lot worse than we have it and a lot less comfortable than we have it here, the anticipation of heaven is bright. But ours is a culture of self-gratification, indulgence. The church becomes, it seems, more worldly. And nothing demonstrates that as dramatically as our disinterest in heaven. Listen to this. Here's a theologian from Gordon-Conwell Seminary. His name is David Wells. He said, quote, We would expect to hear about heaven in evangelical churches, but I don't hear it at all. I don't think heaven is even a blip on the Christian screen from one end of the denominational spectrum to the other. Isn't it interesting how everybody's interested in angels, books on angels, statues of angels, but nobody thinks about where the angels hang out. Not much emphasis about that. Why? Why don't we talk about heaven much? Why is it absent from the pulpits and churches? Because there's just not much interest in it. We are consumed with passing things, temporary things. Sadly, most are like the cynical Mark Twain, who when he was told about heaven, replied, you take heaven, I'd rather go to Bermuda. Sad, isn't it? I I can get heaven here on earth. Uh, Forget about that stuff. What is heaven like, really like? Is it that sticky, sentimental place where we sprout wings and have little golden halos and sit on clouds, bored, thinking of something else to do after playing the harp for a thousand years? Played that tune. What's another tune I can play? It's a definite place. In fact, it is home. In the truest sense, it is your home. Paul said our citizenship is in heaven. Home, sweet home, like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. There's no place like home. It's your home because your father is there, your savior is there, your comforter is there. All departed believers are there. Angels are there. Your reward is there. Your home is in heaven. That's why the Apostle Paul again said, For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. It's going to be so much better than it has been here. Heaven is mentioned 55 times in the book of Revelation alone. I want you to look at the first use of it. Let's go back to Revelation 3. I'm not going to go through all 55. We've already done that. But I want to draw your attention to the first use of heaven because it ties in so perfectly with the verse that we're reading. To the church of Philadelphia in Revelation 3 Verse 11, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. Let's look at the second use of it. Chapter 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like the trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. 
After this, he is caught up, and from the perspective of heaven, he talks about the tribulation period all the way through to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now we come to chapter 21. This is after the second coming, after the millennial reign of Christ on the earth for a thousand years. It's a whole new episode in Revelation. In fact, it's important to realize that we shift dimensions in chapter 21. This is a whole different dimension. We're leaving time and we're getting into the eternal state. This is now eternity. You might say this chapter is out of this world. Because everything we know up to this point in terms of heaven, earth, atmosphere, stratosphere is removed. It's something brand new in the eternal state. In school, you may remember the timelines that your teacher drew or had you draw. The idea is you start on the left and you go all the way to the right and you have little dots along this timeline. The first dot represents birth, the second dot perhaps marriage or kids or a battle that happened. And then the last dot on the line is death. And so here's your lifespan from this dot to this dot on the line. So we have tended to think of time as something that is linear. And we would describe then eternity as a line going indefinitely in both directions. But we know from Albert Einstein that time is relative. It varies. It has physical properties. It varies with mass, with acceleration, and with gravity. And God is not under the constraint of time. He is outside of the time and space continuum. So rather than thinking of a line that goes on and on and on, or thinking of God as someone who twiddles his thumbs and just has lots of time on his hands, you have to remove the line altogether. He is in the other dimension of eternity. That's the eternal state, and really that is what we are dealing with because the heavens and the earth are wiped out at this point and God creates all over again. In Isaiah, it describes God as high and lofty and the one who inhabits eternity. So you're entering into the twilight zone, so to speak, right now. It opens up by saying, and I saw. How many times have we read that phrase? That's been the whole book. And I saw, and I saw, and I saw. Which means he's been a spectator. He has received a vision, it says, from Jesus Christ, who gets it from the Father. And it's unfolded in a series of things that he sees. And he writes down what he sees. The reason I bring that up to your attention is that rather than trying to squeeze into these verses some symbolic, non-literal interpretation. I think it's best to say this is what he saw, this is what he meant by what he saw, this is what is going to happen. I would much rather follow what John sees based on what Jesus tells him what to write than I would to believe all the dumb jokes and stories about Peter standing at a gate with a clipboard telling all the dumb jokes or about life-after-death experiences that people write about, most of them that contradict each other. Better to listen to what John wrote, what Jesus said. After all, Jesus died, rose from the dead, and still lives. I would say that is authoritative. Heaven is mentioned in the Bible three, 532 times. It's mentioned also here in chapter 21. The word that is used here is Uranus. From, we get the term Uranus, the planet in our solar system. It means the heights or the elevated place. One day you're going to get a promotion. You're going to really get elevated. 
In this sense, you'll be in heaven. The Bible speaks of heaven three ways. It speaks of it, and we have gone through this once before, but by way of review. The Bible speaks of the atmosphere around the earth as heaven. Jesus uh, spoke about the birds of the heaven. Uh, In Isaiah, we read about the rain that comes from heaven. That's the atmospheric heavens or the terrestrial heavens. Secondly, the celestial heavens. That's the stratosphere, the place where the moon, the stars, the heavenly bodies reside. Psalms says, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's space. That's Captain Kirk's final frontier. But then there is third, what is called the third heaven by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. I was caught up into the third heaven. That's the heaven of heavens, the abode of God. And though the rabbis and others spoke about the seventh heaven, there's nothing in the Bible to indicate that. Just the atmosphere, the stratosphere, and then this third heaven. Now, where is heaven? Well, it's up, in some sense at least. We read in Revelation 4, and I heard a voice saying, Come up here, and I'll show you things which must take place after this. Paul was caught up into the third heaven. How far up? That's a good question. Um, If you thought about it in terms of time and space... Well, let's start with the moon. The moon is a little over 200,000 miles from the earth. You could walk to the moon if there was a bridge. Take you 27 years. That's going 24 miles a day. You could walk there. But if you could somehow go the speed of light, if they had a vehicle that you could go 186,000 miles per second, you could get from earth to moon in one and a half seconds. If you were traveling 186,000 miles per second and you would go further, you could reach Venus in two minutes and 11 seconds. If you kept going on to Mercury, it would take you four and a half minutes. If you'd go further, again, traveling at 186,000 miles per second, you could reach Jupiter in 35 minutes and 11 seconds. It's only 367 million miles away. If you kept going out toward Saturn, You could reach it in one hour and 11 seconds. That's 790 million miles away. And if you kept scooting out into space, you'd reach Pluto in four hours because it's a little longer. It's 2.7 billion miles from the Earth. Okay, you're really out there. You want to see more. You're traveling already at 186,000 miles per second, the speed of light. You've gone a few hours, but you want to get to the nearest neighbor star, which is Alpha Centauri. Now it's going to take you 4.3 light years. You're going to have to be in that spaceship 4.3 years traveling the speed of light because it's 25 trillion miles away. Now, if you were really into this trip and you wanted to traverse the Milky Way galaxy, from one end of the Milky Way galaxy to the other, If you traveled at the speed of light, 186,000 miles a second, you'd have to stay in that spacecraft for 100,000 years to get from one end of our galaxy to the other. When you do that, you haven't even left the front yard. There are billions, they tell us, of other galaxies beside our galaxy. Now, with that in mind, Isaiah said, Our God measures and marks out the universe with the span of his hand. You say, 
wow, this universe is big. God says, yeah, it's about that big. <laughs> In my measurement. So when we say heaven is up, it's really up. How long does it take to get there? Just like that. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, in a hundred billion light years you'll be with me in paradise. <laughs> he said what? Today. Isn't that amazing? Today. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Just like that. And it is a little bit erroneous to speak of the third heaven in terms of mileage because it's probably a whole other dimension instead of just way up out there because though it is where God dwells, it can be gotten to so instantly. In fact, at the rapture of the church, it says in the twinkling of an eye. That's quick. Not the blink of an eye, which is what, a one-eleventh of a second or one-thirtieth of a second? The twinkling of an eye. The time it takes for light to hit the eye and bounce back for you to see it. A twinkle. That quick. What do we know about heaven? Well, we actually only get glimpses of it, don't we? I hear some people say, well, we can never know at all what heaven is like. That, that's baloney. And they'll usually quote the scripture, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, it has not entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. Well, read the next verse. It says, but God has revealed them to us by his spirit. We do know a little bit, a few glimpses of heaven. Revelation 4, Revelation 5 tell us activities, a sort of a, a setup of the throne room of heaven. And here we get another glimpse of heaven. It is not extensive, however. We don't have a full orb description of it. Even Paul the Apostle said, I was caught up into the third heaven. Now, you'd think, Paul, you should have written about that. <laughs> what did he say, though? He said, it was so awesome, it was just unlawful for a man to utter. I, I won't even try. You, you want to wring his neck, don't you, kind of? <laughs> Tell me what it was like. He said it was unlawful for a man to utter it. This then is a noteworthy scripture because it is describing your future home. Jesus said, I am going to prepare a place for you. This is the place that he goes to prepare for us. This ought to make us then very, very interested in this particular part of the Bible, what heaven is like. Let's look at it. And this morning we want to look at verses 1, 2, and 3. 1, the new heaven and earth. 2, the new Jerusalem capital city of eternity, and three, the new presence of God. There's more new things we'll cover next time. Verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. We love new things, don't we? Everybody does. That's what commercials are all about. Here's the new thing that you don't have. Ooh, I better get that one. It's new. I have the old one. The old isn't as good as the new. Kids want the new toy. Adults want the new clothes, the new car. We want new opportunities, new experiences. One problem. Things that are new here don't stay new for long. The shine fades. Things get scratched and beat up. And you look at it and you go, that was that new thing I just got? It doesn't look new anymore. It's that law of entropy. Things are just decaying all around us. There was a, a period in my life, a month or two months, where every new thing I got, almost the day or week that I got it, got messed up. 
I saved up for this new camera. I took it home. I opened the car door. It had been on my lap. It tumbled out on the driveway and put a big dent in the finder, the prism. Oh, it was so frustrating. Same month, I got a brand new surfboard. First day I took it out, it got a big old hole through it. Then I saved up for a new guitar to lead worship. First time I took it out to play it, it fell over and got a big scratch down the front of it. It was as if God was reminding me, it's all going to burn anyway. (laughs) Use it, but it's not going to be there forever. This is a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, everything we know, everything we see on this earth, everything in the stratosphere, atmosphere, the heaven and the earth are gone at this point. Look over at chapter 20, verse 11. And I saw the great white throne, him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. It's all gone, starting from scratch. The old is gone, the new has come. And it's all summed up in Revelation 21, verse 5, where God says, Behold, or loose paraphrase, check it out. Check it out. I behold, I make all things new. This is brand new heaven, brand new earth, a whole entirely different universe. The word new means different, fresh, new in quality, new in existence. You see, God made the earth for us to live on, inhabit, dwell in, enjoy. But the earth has been under a curse. We have destroyed it. Sin has covered the face of the earth. And one day it will be destroyed. And even Isaiah predicted this. Isaiah 65, he said, Behold, I create new heavens and new earth. The former shall not be remembered or come to mind. In Psalm 102, the psalmist says, Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Even Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. So, this piece of dirt called the earth, this dirt clod in this huge universe, is a disposable planet. Not that we should dispose of it, not that we should indiscriminately trash it, but let me say, if you're in the mode to preserve the environment, it's not going to last. God designed it for temporary use, It is temporary. It will one day be disposed. It was never meant to endure. I'd like you to turn to another passage in the New Testament. Just turn left a couple books to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved being on fire, The elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. 
That's a good question, isn't it? Back in verse 11. Seeing that all these things are going to be dissolved, how should we live? What manner of persons ought we to be? If this is all temporary, should we be focused upon that which is temporary, above that which is eternal? The word, by the way, in that verse, what manner of persons, literally means exotic or foreign. What different, foreign, exotic life should we be living? In other words, our life should be different from the life of the inhabitants of this globe who don't know Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. This is all very temporary. Now, what is the cry of people who want to justify their behavior right now on this earth? If they want to do something and they want to justify what they're doing, usually they say, hey, everybody's doing it. The Christian's response ought to be, yeah, but it's all temporary. It's not going to last. It's one day going to be burned up. And so we should live differently. A couple biologists did an interesting experiment where they took a caterpillar. In fact, they took a bunch of caterpillars. And they put these caterpillars with the lead caterpillar, the leader, on the rim of a clay pot. The pot had a plant inside. Caterpillars live off of green things like that. But the lead caterpillar was put head to tail with the last one. And it was just one circle of caterpillars on the rim of that clay pot. And they went round and around and around and around and around and around and around for a week. In a week they died of exhaustion and starvation. Not one of them broke away from the rest to get into that plant and eat and live. Isn't that so much like our world? Whatever the new trend, whatever they're doing, I've got to stay in step. What manner of person should we be if there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness and all of this stuff is passing away? Break away from the crowd and get life. Live spiritual life. Now, back in Revelation, comes the question, what is this eternal state going to be like? Not much details are given, only one clue. And I don't like the clue, but I'll go through it because it's written. It says, also, there was no more sea. You know how troubling this has been to me over the years? <laughs> I have wrestled and struggled and agonized over that phrase in the Bible. I love the ocean. I came from the ocean. I love the sea. There'll be no more sea. And, and, I don't know if you've ever gotten it, but I get people who will say you know, things like, but I love my cat. Certainly my cat will be in heaven. It couldn't be heaven without my cat. If that person isn't there. I don't want to be there. It couldn't be heaven without that person. Those are the infantile kind of things that we talk about. And I've seen that about the sea. It couldn't be heaven without the sea. I've even tried to reinterpret this verse a little bit. Bring in a few metaphors here. It says, for instance, in the Bible that the Gentile nations, apart from the covenant of God, are like the restless sea. Go, yeah, that's what it means. And there won't be any of those kinds of people. Or the Antichrist that comes out of the sea. Yeah, that's probably it. The, the, the sea of unbelievers. I think, however, I take a more literal approach. There won't be any sea. And actually, I want to say that there's a lot of information in that little sentence perhaps more than meets the eye. It simply means the earth will be different. 
Right now, we live in a very watery world. Two-thirds of the earth is water. Most of our bodies are water. Most of plant and animal life is water. It's the only planet in the universe that we know of that has the amount of water needed to sustain the biosphere that we have that is so dependent on water. If you don't drink water, you'll die. They say you need eight glasses a day so that you're not dehydrated. So we are dependent upon the use of water. There's water on our earth now. In the millennium, we're told in many places there will be an abundance of water. But we're told here there is no sea. So the new heaven and the new earth will not operate on the principle of water. There will not be the demand in our celestial bodies for water as there is in the bodies that we have now. You say, yeah, but uh, will there be any water at all? Well, Revelation 22 says there's a, a pure river of the water of life. We'll get to that next time or in a few weeks. So why does John even bring this up? Did he do it just to tick me off? <laughs> no, I think he did it just to say it's going to be different. And that's as profound a way as you can say it's different. A new heaven and a new earth, and there's no sea. It's going to be a very different environment. Also, we know that seas separate people, right? They separate us from one another. There will be no separation. Just that new earth, whatever size, whatever look, no sea, no great divisions, all of God's people living under the authority of Christ. Next, we come to the new Jerusalem in verse 2. I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. This is a different kind of a city. From God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This, then, is the capital city of eternity. This is headquarters. This is command central, the new Jerusalem. Now, this isn't all there is to heaven. There's a new heaven, a new earth, and coming out of heaven somewhere, perhaps even orbiting around the earth, is this city called New Jerusalem. We even know its dimensions later on. We're told it's 1,500 miles cubed, just a little smaller than the sun, or excuse me, than the moon. So it could be as something that it will just sort of orbit around this new earth. Whatever it is, architecturally, dimensionally, it's more modern and different than anything we've ever known. Again, uh, this sort of begs the question, uh, are you sure this is literal? Well, let me put it this way. If this isn't literal then I have no idea what this means. And you can look at this and say, well, you know, he said this, but he didn't mean that. Well, then I would ask you, who's going to unravel the mystery of what he means if he doesn't say what he means? Some person say, well, I think it means this. Well, I think it means that. I think it means what he said. It's what he saw. That's what he wrote. Oh, but it's so hard for me to picture. Of course, you're in this dimension. All you know is what you have seen and experienced. It's, it's as hard as for you to believe this as it would be for God parting the Red Sea or creating the heaven and the earth the first time. That's a big feat in and of itself. It's a new Jerusalem. How many of you have taken a tour with us to Israel? Raise your hand. It's awesome to go and visit Jerusalem. I've walked around its walls many times. I've scoped it out. I've studied its archaeology. But let me say this, if you've never gone on a tour to Israel, if you've never seen Jerusalem, you will take an awesome tour one day. It's going to be very different, however. It is kind of nice to compare the old with the new to have a frame of reference. But this is a new city. God has desired such a city. 
There has never been a holy city like this. Abraham looked for it, right? It says that Abraham in Hebrews 11 looked for a city that had foundations whose builder and maker is God. That's the new Jerusalem. We know that in the millennium, Jesus Christ will rule from Jerusalem. But there will be a rebellion at the end of the thousand years. Here now is a new Jerusalem, not an earthly city. Notice what it's called here. The holy city, new Jerusalem. It's just as new as this earth is new when it's created, the new earth. You have a new heaven, a new earth, and a new city coming out of heaven, descending. Same phraseology is used down in verse 10. Hard to imagine a holy city, isn't it? Usually people think the country is holy. The boondocks are holy. But the city, there's no such thing as a holy city. Would Albuquerque qualify? A holy city? Los Angeles? San Francisco? Rio? Stockholm? Tokyo? Not at all. Why will it be holy? Because all, get this, all of the occupants in it will be holy. Every single inhabitant will be holy. And that's marked out in verse 8. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all the liars that have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It's a holy place. Notice it's described as a bride prepared for her husband. Why is it described that way? It's a city. It's a place. It's given dimension in verses after this, but it's called it's seen as a bride adorned because though it's a place, it is described in terms of its populace. In terms of it, it's a bride city. The bride inhabits it. The people of God inhabit it. And it's adorned. It's beautiful. Just like a bride on her wedding day. This is then the bride city. And we're going to get more to the New Jerusalem because it's, it's given in detail in verses after this. Let's look now finally in verse 3 at the new presence of God. This is to me the best part And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Now that is monumental. It has always been God's heart to hang out intimately with his people, to have fellowship with his people. There's always been something in the way, though, It's been sin, and it's marked all of creation. So in the Old Testament, God set up a tabernacle. Remember, God's presence dwelt in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, in the Ark of the Covenant, and this pillar of fire and smoke guided them through the wilderness. Then there was the temple, and it says the Shekinah glory, or the the, the glory of God, dwelt within that place, inhabited that place. But there were still courts, And you couldn't go into the inner court. Nobody could except the priest. There were separations. There were rituals, sacrifices. So there was a distance between God and man. So ultimately, in speaking to man, God sent his son into the world. Emmanuel, God with us. And it says, and the word became flesh, and literally in Greek, and tabernacled among us. And we saw his glory. But this is in an entirely different sense. No more veiled, no more ritual, no more cloth tent in the wilderness, no more even veiled God in flesh. God dealing directly with his people 
in intimate fellowship with his people. Now he's with us today whenever two or three gather in his name. He said he'll be with us. He's also with us individually. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. But in the future, it will be different. It's not, he, I mean, he is with us now, but he'll dwell directly with us. Remember what John wrote? Beloved, we are the sons of God, and it doesn't yet appear what we shall be. But we know this, when he appears, we'll be like him, for we will see him as he is. That is absolutely unfathomable to a Jewish person in the New Testament. God will be directly with his people. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. There will be no distance, no long-distance communication. It will be one-on-one. It will be face-to-face. You know, I've discovered that no matter how sophisticated you are or spiritually, theologically well-informed you may be, you have a basic desire to see God. You do. You're not satisfied with anything less David said, I will be satisfied when I awaken your likeness. You remember H.G. Wells' story of the Invisible Man? It's been put into film on several occasions. It's sort of an interesting idea. Who hasn't wanted to be invisible at one point or the other and walk into a room and hear what people are saying? But as the story unfolds, people have found it very uncomfortable to relate to somebody who is invisible. People have always had trouble with the invisible God. Your kids have asked you questions like this. What does God look like? How big is God? And I bet you've answered it with something like, well, we don't ask those questions. We, we, we don't know. But deep in your heart, you ask the same questions. You want to know. Even Moses did. Moses saw miracle after miracle after miracle. And basically at Sinai, he said, time out, God. I want to see you. Show me your glory. God said, Moses, if you see my glory, you'll die. You can't see me as long as you're in this body of flesh. You will just fizzle up, post-toasty. Then there was Philip. When Jesus was talking about the Father, said, look, just show us the Father. And that'll be enough. And there was Peter, James, and John who saw the glory of Jesus as he was transfigured with Moses and Elijah in bright, radiant light. And, of course, he wanted to build a museum right there. He wanted to just keep it just like it was. What did he see? He saw a preview of coming attractions, a commercial for heaven. He saw it and he went, wow, that's what I want. He wanted to see, really, the face of God more and more. Like Moses, like Philip, like those disciples, you will never be totally satisfied until you see the face of God. So you ought to yearn for your home. And knowing that you have a new heaven and a new earth, this eternal state, in the future, after the kingdom age, ought to whet your appetite. You know, when I travel, I like to take a picture or two of my family because they're going to ask me when I travel, are you married? Do you have children? Yes, here they are. And at night, I'll pull them out when I'm lonely. I'm reminded of them. But I'm not satisfied looking at the picture. I don't pull them out and go, oh, okay, I can stay a few more weeks. (laughs) Right? It just whets my appetite to be closer. I may call them on the telephone and they'll hear my voice and I'll hear their voice. It doesn't satisfy me. It accentuates the loss even more. 
It's only when I embrace them and I'm face to face that I'm satisfied. All of that to say this. Every single experience you have now as a Christian, every great worship experience you have, every time you say, I felt so close to God at that time, was never meant to satisfy you, only to whet your appetite for heaven. If it satisfies you, you could say, I don't need any more. I had that one experience. No, you want to get closer to the Lord. And worship does that. It whets our appetite. Are you a Christian this morning? I pray that the grip of this world would be loosened in your life and that you would see this temporal stuff in the light of eternal stuff. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I would pray that you would have your appetite wet for heaven. What better place is there? I would finally say to Mark Twain, you can keep Bermuda, I'll take heaven. Father, we thank you for what's in store. Far more beautiful, far more grand, far more modern than any vacation spot on this earth, than any creature comfort we have in our homes. And it's free. It cost you a great deal to send your son to die for the sin of the world. But it's free to anyone who receives that work. Lord, some of us are so gripped by the temporal that the eternal doesn't phase us much. We're so comfortable here that heaven is just sort of a, a P.S. We know from church history that anyone who had a dramatic impact in his world thought more of the next one and was motivated by that thought. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' name. Amen.